This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. I started the intro without my mic on. It was very entertaining, to me at least. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, I spent the whole time potty training my kid and wondering what the left offer is the working class. <laughs> Poop all around, man. <laughs> the, our next door neighbors, they go out front or go out on their back porch every morning at 6 a.m. and get high. And I've been trying to figure out if they are awake and baking or if they work the third shift because the only other time I see them is 5 o'clock on Thursdays when they're out front to score weed from their dealer. So I'm still trying to wrap my mind around these people. Are they incredibly responsible stoners who work all day long and work the third shift then come home and smoke pot at 6 a.m.? Or are they... Completely irresponsible pot smokers like me and wake and baking. Cre- crepuscular day. stoners over there. <laughs> I don't. I don't know what's what's crepuscular. Uh, it's animals that are awake in the morning and at night only. Huh. Huh. Well, learn something every day. Also, uh, my spell check keeps changing uh, fascist to fasciitis. I don't know what that's about. Don't know. Have any, no clue. Uh, and I was reminded how for several weeks we were starting every Monday's show with how the country had gone from gone more fascist over each and every weekend. Thanks to the provocations of President Trump and the past weekend, fascism was turned up to 11. And the right may have gotten a martyr and the left may have gotten two. So who the hell knows what's going to happen next and what many on social media fear is a burgeoning civil war, but I do know that the New York Times reported on the benefits of ayahuasca on veterans and their PTSD. The first ever clinical trials were done on a new combination of LSD with MDMA to cut off the edge, and a renowned mycologist has come up with the perfect combination of drugs for microdosing with psilocybin. So things are looking up when it comes to the next level of human consciousness, because if you didn't know, each evolutionary step is caused by the introduction of a new hallucinogenic natural medicine, at least according to the guy who is pushing for microdosing as a kind of therapy. So we might be headed for civil war or we might be headed for elevated consciousness. I also did something I never do. I listened to the show, a part of the show from 20 years ago when I was on vacation back in August of the year 2000. Alex shared that monologue when I reported on my annual family vacation from a payphone booth by the side of the road, the closest phone to our cabin, which is like a mile away. And I completely forgot about that trip, so it was, it was really weird uh, to listen to me telling me stuff I completely forgot, like the conversation I overheard while eating pasties in the UP about comparative motorcycle roadkill. So I really appreciated you sharing that, Alex, and some listeners really enjoyed it as well. And people can find that right now by going to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. On today's show, protests against racialized police violence have been the target of deadly violence as a pandemic continues to rage around the world. The protests and the pandemic do not know borders, but the people suffering around the world from violence and unequal health outcomes certainly know the effects of those borders. As our guest this morning will point out, the borders of the global north now stretch deep into the global south, far from their former colonizers' home countries. The former colonial powers now keep their former subjects controlled by exporting securitized border policies that do everything they can to make certain nobody trapped in the global south suffering from U.S. economic policies can get out as they suffer from U.S. border policies. Whether it's the violence that is being protested in the wake of the murder of George Floyd or the racialized violence of borders, what is being protested in both cases is colonialism. We'll find the links between the pandemic, police violence, colonialism, and racism in a few when we speak with Nave Niviren who is the they gotta go back here, legal scholar who wrote the Roar Magazine article, The Deadly Politics of Colonial Borders Under COVID-19. Neve coordinates the Transnational Institute's War and Pacification Program, which focuses on the permanent state of war and pacification of resistance. You can find out more about Transnational Institute by going to TNI.org, and you can follow them on Twitter at TNInstitute.org. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Helen. Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is whatever the hell New Zealand writer Josie Adams is up to. 
A New Zealand website called The Spinoff ran a story a year ago headlined, The Ultimate Hangover Feeds, as chosen by experts. They survey their staff members as well as a selection of chefs and restaurateurs about their go-to hangover feeds, which is apparently New Zealand slang for meals. And one of their writers, Josie Adams, said her hangover cure is, Cook instant mee goreng noodles, leave the water in, add a flavor packet, plus a tablespoon of peanut butter. That's called satay style, I believe. Okay, wait. Then... You keep adding, this is the most insane sentence. You keep adding instant mashed potato until the soup is absorbed. It's very carby. It's so gross. What a nightmare. So that makes this week's hangover cure instant noodles with peanut butter and mashed potatoes until all the soup is absorbed. God, what, what a nightmare. What is Josie Adams up to? What the hell is she up to? This is not the media. This is hell. And one way you can tell we are definitely not the media, is because we ask you who you want on the show, what stories or topics you want to hear discussed, and we actually get those guests on the show or talk about whatever you want us to talk about. This is how it's completely listener-supported, not only when it comes to our bottom line, but when it comes to our content as well. Without you, we got nothing. So thank you for all your support at thisishell.com when you click on support. And thanks for all your support by giving us guest and topic suggestions, as well as all the constructive and destructive criticism you send along. If you send it to us, more than likely we'll read it on air, even if we don't know what you wrote means. For example, Kennedy writes in huge, bold letters, The military output during World War II was the result of the War Production Board. The U.S. government took over capitalist means of production to defeat the fascists. I'm not sure if Kennedy is just getting this information now and wants to share what they believe is breaking news, but Kennedy is correct. Military output during World War II was the result of the War Production Board, and the U.S. government took over capitalist means of production to defeat the fascists. For any of you whose history courses may not have gotten all the way through World War II... Spencer R. has some content suggestions. Spencer writes, hey, Chuck and Alex, my partner Grace and I first subscribed after we heard your interview with John Bellamy Foster detailing the ecological history of Marxism at a time when I was scouring the internet for media covering the ecological underpinnings behind the proliferation of zoonotic disease. That's disease that's passed from animals to humans. Most outlets had failed to confront this topic, but you had several interviews about it on your site, and your talks with global correspondents about the virus got us hooked. That's when we were doing one every Thursday. We were talking to different people around the world about how the virus had impacted them. Spencer continues, I wanted to suggest two guests, but of course, since you have great taste, you've already had one of them on. In December, Theo Rio Francos uh, published this beautifully written piece in Logic Mag about the Plurinational Observatory of Andean Salt Flats, fighting to preserve the unique salt flat ecosystems from the lithium mines at the extractivist frontier of green capitalism, a topic recently in the news with reports exposing the flaws in the OAS, the Organization of American States, accusations of Bolivian election fraud that were used to justify overthrowing its democratically elected socialist government. And you can find our past interview with Thea at our site. Again, this is hell.com, and you should definitely be reading her work, Thea Rio Francos, whenever you get a chance. Spencer continues, I also would like to suggest hitting up Louis Metzger about his recent piece about the oil spill and Mauritius and the medical potential we could lose all along with the biochemical diversity of coral reefs there. Did you know there's a sponge-derived compound that brought survival rate to patients with a childhood cancer from 10% to 90%? Or that there's an algae-based medicine that inhibits COVID infection more effectively than Gilead's patented COVID drug? No, I did not know that, Spencer, but I will be looking that up. Uh, Spencer adds, it's also a personal goal of mine to make it onto the show someday, so I'm also going to shamelessly link some recent articles I wrote on public utility ownership, even though you've covered it extensively, which I appreciate. The agribusiness campaign to greenwash ranching with regenerative agriculture, and a new one Grace and I wrote together about the movement to privatize the animal shelter system, if any of those things are interesting to you. Excuse me for the excessive self-promotion, if you do read this one on air, on air, please leave out this paragraph. No, I'm not going to leave out that last paragraph, Spencer, because I want to make certain our listeners are aware of your Jacobin article, Socialize 
the animal shelters. The article states America's animal shelter system is a disaster. We need a well-funded, fully public system that no longer treats animals as expendable commodities and empowers the workers who staff public shelters. Spencer concludes, I'd also like to put an indie journalist collective I'm part of, Media for Us, on your radar, which is working on a project called Rift Magazine, hopefully going live soon. Thank you for your time and hard work. Proud to support you, Spencer. Find out more about Media for Us at mediaforus.org. And again, check out Spencer and Grace's writing at Jacobin on socializing animal shelters because... I am tired of seeing those ads raising money to end animal cruelty. Can somebody please stop Sarah McLaughlin and put her out of a job? Her music is starting to trigger me worse than the Cars for Kids theme. Wes sent us a suggestion. Wes writes, Dear Chuck, I'm writing because I enjoy your show and because last year I helped write a substantial overview of the Hong Kong movement and the frontliner culture that became a key tactical dimension of it. I appreciated your coverage of the Hong Kong movement last year and the recent interview, but would love to deal more with this tactical dimension as well as the political and theoretical questions it generates. Not only has frontliner culture, marked most visibly by umbrellas and lasers, but also by new techniques of collaboration, conflict resolution, and coalition building, spread to Chile and Belarus. It appeared in Chicago at last month's demonstration in Grant Park. Since then, it appears that expanding circles of protesters in the Black Lives Matter movement there have adopted these tactics and compositional methods, leading most recently to the scandalous repression in Chicago downtown two weeks ago. I thought your show would be an excellent form to dig into the implications of of this decisive shift in Chicago street movements. The upheavals in the city, and now in Kenosha, drove home the urgency of this conversation, which is why I'm reaching out to you now. Please let me know if you'd consider having me on the show. You can find our articles on this subject and an additional article written by our comrades at shangcn.org. That's C-H-U-A-N-G-C-N.org. C-H-U-A-N-G-C-N dot org. Thanks for your time and your efforts. Thanks, Wes. The articles Wes links to are Summer and Smoke, Report from the World's Biggest Black Block, and Welcome to the Front Lines, Beyond Violence and Nonviolence. And again, you can find them at C-H-U-A-N-G-C-N dot org. And I don't know to what extent we've had a conversation solely on protest tactics in the past. They have come up in other conversations, but... Not as the focus of an interview, so thanks, Wes. And we're going to look into this as it is a topic we've never discussed thoroughly on the show in the past. Jessica, who has traveled all the way from Memphis to join us during our annual listener appreciation party a few times, a truly amazing person. I love Jessica. Sent us a link to the New York Times article, How Dr. Fauci found himself talking to Julia Roberts, Lil Wayne, and just about any podcaster who asked. Jessica writes, I guess this would be considered a listener recommendation. To be clear, I am only recommending because I want to hear the question from hell for Dr. Fauci. Which makes me wonder, what would be the question from hell for Dr. Fauci? Considering that President Trump downplayed the virus and was slow to react, how much blood is on Trump's hands, and I want to know it in exact total number of pints? What impacted only allowing 40,000 people into the United States from China after Trump imposed a ban on all travel into the states from China, except for those 40,000 exceptions, having and limiting the spread of the virus? Did that help? How many lives would have been saved as, if the U.S. had a universal health care system? Do you believe the president puts profits before people when it comes to the pandemic? In fact, I'm starting to think the interview would be nothing but questions from hell problem is, every time we have some kind of great idea where we're going to have this famous person on the show and we'll get tons more listeners and and support, it never happens. It's the interviews with the most obscure guests on the weirdest topics that we never thought anyone would have any interest in whatsoever, and suddenly we see an uptick in listeners, shares, and support. So I don't know. I'll think about it. We got an email from the good folks at Wild Folk Farms. They're not an email. We got a package in the mail. No. I take that back. The package hasn't come yet. We did get an email in the mail. We got an email from the good folks at Wild Folk Farms in Fairfield, Maine, that says, Hey, my partner and I love your podcast. We were filling orders and decided to send you a little care package from Maine. Our company makes organic CBD medicinals. 
Unfortunately, the address on the website didn't seem to work, so it's stuck in limbo at the moment. So we found out that USPS, United States Postal Service, they tried to deliver the package to our office on Friday night at 11.30. And no, we were not at the office on Friday night, just before midnight, waiting for packages of CBD medicinals. Had we known they would be arriving at such an odd hour, yes, we would have definitely been there waiting. They continue, thanks for what you do. We really appreciate your long-haul work so much. Like everyone, we've had mail delivery problems here at the show. However, we've spoken with the post office, and they have been told to deliver all of our packages to the Halal Chinese restaurant next door, as the bar is inaccessible due to the virus, and we only have a very small mail slot on our front door. We're thinking about putting in some big mailboxes so we can actually get all of our packages, but... We're still working on that. So if you want, you can send us anything you want to at This Is Hell, second floor, 2251 West Devon, Chicago, Illinois, 60659. And we got a package while we were on summer break that is spectacular that I made a reference to at the end of last week's show, including some photoshopped images of me in a variety of odd physical positions. And I'll be sharing that very weird letter that we got in the mail in just a bit. You can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com. You can DM us via Twitter at thisishellradio. You can send us a message via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can send us anything you want to the mailing address at our site. Again, this is Hell, second floor, 2251 West Devon, Chicago, Illinois, 606. Coming up, the link between the protest against racialized police violence and immigration. We'll also have Rotten History tell you the rest of this week's guests and reveal this week's question from hell. We also have some listeners that we want to thank, and we'll be sharing that incredible letter and package that we got in the mail from a listener. Live from late capitalism, where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy, this is hell. Like racialized police violence, the cruel lives faced by migrants are the outcome of colonialism and the borders that contain the global South, keeping those who are trying to flee policies imposed upon them from far away from the global North. As those borders become increasingly securitized with assistance from countries like the U.S., more authoritarian leaders emerge to keep their citizenry right where the United States wants them. And that's far away from the U.S. That is the the U.S. that is exploiting them. Here to help us understand the link between borders and black Lives Matter. Nave Niviren is a legal scholar and wrote the Roar magazine article, The Deadly Politics of Colonial Borders Under COVID-19. Welcome to This Is Hell, Nave. Hi, Chuck. How are you? Thanks for having me. Nave coordinates the Transnational Institute's War and Pacification Programs, which focuses on the permanent state of war and pacification of resistance. You can find out more about the Transnational Institute at TNI.org, and you can follow the Transnational Institute on Twitter at TNI. Institute. Now, you write that COVID-19 is causing thousands of deaths every day, but the pandemic is killing in other ways, too. How does closing the borders to stop the spread of a deadly virus kill? By avoiding the potential spread of the virus by closing borders, how are we actually putting people's lives at risk? Because it seemed at the time as a very commonsensical thing to do to stop people's movement in order to make certain that a virus doesn't spread. So how can stopping people's movement make a virus actually more deadly? Um, so, well, first of all, thanks a million again for inviting inviting me to join the, the conversation. I think, um, I mean, it's a very good question because I think on the face of it, when when you say closing borders is a, is a positive step Towards stopping movement, um, on the face of it, it does look like it's a it's a good solution that we would reduce people's movements if they can't move as much as they need to. But I think that's assuming that everybody is safe where they are, um, and of course that is is very much not the case. And as we know, there are millions of people on the move across the planet who are moving because they are facing situations of risk, um, it, you know, and they need to move in order to survive. People have moved in order to survive for millennia. Um, and I think that a decision that so that will 
shut down borders is going to lead to deaths. And we've seen that in, if I, if I draw on an example from Europe, where ports in the Mediterranean, I'm referring specifically to Italy, to Malta, to Cyprus, um, but also other countries in the Mediterranean have, have shut down their ports to ships uh, docking. And in those ships, there are people who are fleeing for their lives and they're left to drown in the Mediterranean. This is nothing new. Um, unfortunately, people have been left to drown in the Mediterranean for many years. Um, but I think that on the scale that they have been shutting down ports and allowing, knowingly allowing boats adrift for days and days on end, where people are on those boats who need critical medical intervention, who need emergency humanitarian care, that are allowed to die of dehydration uh, when they're floating in water surrounding the richest nations in the world, then you have to really question whether closing down borders to restrict movement during the time of a pandemic is what, whose lives are you trying to save, I think, is the question that, that we need to put when we, when we put that as a, as a solution. And you write that there is a sustained and concerted effort by European leaders to keep people seeking asylum out at all costs. And far too often, they pay the ultimate price with their lives. At least six people died each day trying to cross the Mediterranean Sea in recent years. In reality, though, there are like many, many more lives lost. Europe must view migrants then as a threat. In fact, over the weekend, reports from southern Sicily saw a rise in anti-immigrant sentiment following a surge in coronavirus cases on the island. Whether it's for health reasons or security reasons, how much of a threat are migrants to countries like Italy? Um, I mean, I think that even suggesting or framing that migrants are a threat is is completely absurd. Um, I think that, and and this is from the very top, uh, you know, the 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 seats of power in Brussels. It's we're we're seeing more and more. I think in the last. 10 years, the last decade, we'll say, um, we're seeing a framing of people on the move. Uh, it's a securitization of people on the move and a securitization of borders. And uh, we're starting to frame people who are fleeing horrific situations and who are uh, seeking international protection. We're seeing them framed as a threat. And I mean, people, as I said already, people have always moved. And I think it's particularly notable, I think, in, you know, if you travel to the south of Italy or if you travel to the north of Africa and you see that there's been a convergence of cultures across the Mediterranean for, for millennia. And you can see that in the ruins uh, that are popping up across the Mediterranean, that there has been movement over and back across this region for centuries. And now all of a sudden it's being framed as a threat Um even as, as recently as November, I was in Tunisia for a gathering and speaking with lo- local Tunisians, they said that up until 20 or so years ago, they didn't need visas. They would travel to Italy on, at the end of their summer for a, a summer break uh, or they would go to Italy shopping. And, and 30 years ago, people were mo- go- traveling from Italy and Greece to Tunisia to work on the olive uh, farms in Tunisia because that was seasonal work and the flow for seasonal work was to travel down to North Africa and not what we're seeing at the moment. Whereas all of a sudden now this sort of movement is being treated as a threat in the last 10 or so years. And I think we really need to challenge that and, and ask, well, what, what, what do we need? So if this is a threat, what do we need to feel more secure? And actually, I think that usually feeling more secure in our everyday lives has very little to do with militarization of borders and, and a lot more to do with what we've seen coming through, I think, with the virus. What we've seen is that we don't have security in how we can access our healthcare. If we get sick, uh, if we can access schools, education, uh, pension schemes and all of the social securities that we need around us to, to live a, a safer life in that situation and not so much what our leaders are feeding to us, which is that we need to militarize our borders in order to be safe. You write that human history is a history of migration. It has always been like this and will always remain so. Out of sheer desperation, alternating degrees of hope and despair, and driven by the f- human instinct to survive, people will continue to move, fleeing war-torn countries, political and economic violence, or devastation brought about by climate breakdown. Instead of guaranteeing their freedom of movement and the right to seek asylum, border externalization, which we'll get to in a moment, and securitization pl- places them in perpetual insecurity, impeding their onward journey 
journey, but similarly, they are unable to return home. As in Dante's Inferno, they've been banished to Limbo, the outermost circle of hell, their crime, trying to survive. Why does capitalism seem to not be able to adapt to the fact that humans have always been on the move? Or, as you were just telling the story of Tunisia and saying that only 20 years ago they had far more movement than they do today, is this not about capitalism allowing people or opposing the movement of people, but the newest form of capitalism, neoliberalism, not allowing the movement of people? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's definitely entangled between capitalism, neoliberalism, people on the move, um, and 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 massive profits. And I think that, uh, you know, I think that the the very structure of a border is crucial to that system. To you know, so you have uh, cheap labor that comes in, and whether that labor is available through uh, seasonal visas where people whereby people are allowed to come in legally and I'm putting legally into quotations because I don't think anyone should be considered illegal but whether somebody comes into Europe with with documents which allow them to work for a, a specific time period or whether they're smuggled into Europe or trafficked into Europe or however they get here where they may not have those papers it's all within a capitalist system and so you have people who you know, they're going to work for probably a lower wage um, because the system allows that to happen. So the whole the whole system is is borders are kind of channeling people into this system whereby they're forced to work in sub uh, human conditions. There's huge problems with housing. Um, and we've seen that an awful lot with the COVID-19 outbreaks. I, I'm from Ireland and I just uh, traveled back to Ireland for a break. And there's a huge, uh, you know, people are for the first time starting to realize that people who are coming to Ireland to carry out work in meat factories or picking fruits and vegetables, that they're often, you know, that their housings are substandard, that they're pretty excluded from society and, and that they're being paid lower wages and that they're not allowed access to our health system to our education system and then they're just put on a plane once the vegetables are picked or once the meat has been packed and they're shipped back to their own countries and that's of course that's capitalism and then like you said neoliberalism that's that's what is so wrong with it but that's what functions for the capitalist system to continue to you know to propel itself Um, and that's what we need to be questioning i think and we need to see borders as a critical part within that Do you think capitalism is becoming more desperate at keeping itself going and that's why they're making these more drastic steps at things like securitizing borders? I think in and of itself it's desperate Um, and I suppose it feeds off itself and it will fuel itself Um, and I think that within that we often don't pay as much attention to the profits being made within this system from the militarization of borders. Um, And I think that that's a huge area that we often kind of turn a blind eye to, but it can't be removed from this capitalist system either of profit and, 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 and making money off other people's misery, I think. What do you mean by externalizing borders? This is a topic that's come up on the show in the past, but for those who have not heard that uh, discussion, how can a nation's borders not be only its own physical borders? How can far-off countries impose borders elsewhere? So I think when when we talk about externalization of borders, what we really mean is, I suppose, Western powers. Um, So in in the case of Europe or in the case of the U.S., controlling borders that are far beyond what kind of delineates their jurisdictional lines. So I think maybe just taking the example from the U.S., the obviously the U.S. borderline is U.S.-Mexico or U.S.-Canada or whatever. But the U.S. actually controls the border down south between Mexico and Guatemala. So they provide training they provide equipment. There are, you know, bilateral agreements between Mexico and the U.S., which effectively allow the U.S. to control what happens in the in Mexico's southern border with Guatemala. So, even if you're not uh, technically entering U.S. jurisdiction when you cross from Guatemala into Mexico, effectively the border politics politics that you're up against are being dictated from Washington. 
Um, and we're seeing the same thing in, in Europe in, in that agreements that have been negotiated between European powers, the European countries are also the European Union as a whole that have been negotiated with countries as far away as Azerbaijan or Senegal or Mali or Niger, uh, whereby Europe is calling the shots and even European troops. So we have a lot of European countries have troops placed in the Sahel um, under the guise of fighting terrorism. But as we had the French president say a few months back that, you know, we need to Europeanize the Sahel. So there doesn't seem to be any shame in in continuing to claim that far off lands uh, still should function as if they were part of Europe or, or part of West, under Western powers and control. And that's why I said in, in the article that ex- border externalization is, is colonialism by another name. Um, and, I, and I think we need to really start framing it as such. And also, I think with ex- border externalization, very few people, unless they're actually, you know, quite informed, I think, on, on border politics, very few people will know just how much Western powers are impacting border policies in far off lands. And I think that that also works to the benefit of the Western powers, because a lot of what they're done then goes without any democratic scrutiny and oversight. Um, and that seems to work in in allowing these policies to be perpetuated and, and, and strengthened, I think. So why are these former colonies so attracted to their former occupiers controlling their border? What what do they get out of the deal? What, what what's the attraction to being in that kind of partnership? So I suppose in the case of uh, European control in Africa, I mean, uh, just taking the case of Niger, Niger is hugely rich in resources. Um, and talking about natural resources, for want of a better word, but. The European powers have huge uh, have a huge stake in obtaining those resources of of hollowing out, continuing to hollow out huge parts of Africa. Um, also, the, there's a lot of uh, countries around the European Union as they try and seek entry into the European Union. The European Union will impose on them uh, obligations whereby they need to. Uh, improve, uh, for want of a better word, their detention system and detain people before they come into Europe. So there's a lot of scaremongering as well that, well, we won't allow you to be part of the EU unless you impose our border policies. And that means building a privatized detention system. And then you're back into discussing capitalism again when you talk about privatization of detention and and profits and, and all of what comes with that. Do securitized, externalized border policies, do they lead to more authoritarian governments? Because one thing I was thinking about when I was reading your piece is I started thinking about the role that uh, these externalized border policies, these securitized border policies play in the rise of global fascism. Do you think that there is a rise of the far right because of these securitized, externalized borders? Um, I think the first part of your question where you mentioned about the do the externalization of border policies, does that lead to kind of more authoritarian governments? I think definitely in the case of Europe, if you look at the countries that are around Europe and that are on the receiving end of benefits from Europe to keep uh, very questionable border policies in place that are highly undemocratic and, and violating human rights, the regimes that are implementing that. I mean, if you think of Egypt, if you think of Sudan, if you think of Libya, uh, these are far from democratic countries. And yet Europe is very happy to play ball with them um, in order for them to to support Europe's policies on on borders. Um, and, And even if you think of you know, the U.S. and its funding of the Mexican military and, and the Mexican border apparatus, the Mexican military is involved in horrific human rights violations. And yet the U.S. is happy to continue funding and, and providing support to, to Mexican security operations under the guise that it's for border control. But in fact, people who are fleeing Central America are, are fleeing horrific situations of violence and they're in, you know, they're seeking international protection, which is their right. So externalization becomes very, very murky and gets very, very much in, 
entangled with, you know, global politics and what seems to be one thing on the surface is very different, I think, if you scratch the surface even slightly. Yeah, because that's, I think, a point that is constantly missed here in the U.S. news media. To what extent are the conditions in Honduras, El Salvador, Guatemala, for instance, to what extent are those conditions caused by the wealth we have here in the global north? Are we rich off of the labor of others, creating conditions that make them want to leave their home countries, and then they're unable to leave legally because the U.S. has imposed its border on their country? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think even if you look at trade trade agreements, no, and I think that it's been very um, well documented the impact on NAFTA in you know the North America North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, where you have people who in Mexico are not able to grow and sell their own corn or their own fruit and vegetables, and they have to leave Mexico and try and travel to the U.S. Because Mexico is now importing corn from from the U.S. at a better price. So you have these free trade agreements that work out very well for people who are wealthy, but for those who, who were making a living before the free trade agreements came into being, many of those have been forced into poverty and forced to leave. And I think often when we think about Central America, we think uh, that it's, you know, we, we tend to, I think, and I'm speaking more of mainstream media, minimize the impact of, of criminal violence. And we think, well, it's not such a so much a war situation. In fact, Central America is one of the most violent places on the planet. Um, and, and we often fail to see how the impact of criminal violence and criminal gangs and even economic violence also um, the impact that that has, and, and we tend to kind of categorize people who are fleeing between legitimate refugees and and, and people who are uh, hoping to make an extra book, where in, in, in fact we should consider that everyone who is moving has a legitimate right to move and, and, and really question why are they doing that and how is that linking back to the, like you said, the policies being imposed by the US or by Europe on their home countries. Um, and another example we see a lot in, for example, in West Africa, that the borders that have been imposed are borders that were drawn up in Berlin, you know, over 100 years ago and, and bear no resemblance to the to the local geographies and, and, and people in place. And often crossing borders was never, uh, you know, it was, an, it was never, you know, there's lots of seasonal work, for example, in the coca industry. Uh, producing coca beans for chocolate and people would cross over and back borders without even realizing it and suddenly you know they're being imposed and all of that access to seasonal labor is also being completely sidelined and forcing people to move who probably wouldn't have moved in the first place so I think we need to also connect the kind of trade deals that we're doing with border politics and and how border politics is also impacting on localized trade that has gone on for centuries. If the profit incentive were not there, would there be border externalization and forced deportations to the extent we are seeing them today? And if not, what does that reveal to you about border externalization and forced deportations if they wouldn't exist without a profit incentive? Um... Gosh, that's a big question. If the profit incentive didn't exist, would there still be border externalization? I think what we've seen is that, at least in 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 the context of externalization, we've seen that it's becoming the central. So I think there's there's two things. So we have, on the one hand, we have massive arms companies who are lobbying governments in Brussels. I'm, I imagine the same thing is happening in the U.S. Also, uh, lobbying governments to beef up their borders to a huge extent. You have massive profits. And once that kind of process of making such high profits begins to roll, it's really hard to see how that can be rolled back on again. And what we're seeing in border politics is that we're seeing externalization is becoming key as border politics. We're starting to securitize the arrival of people and forming forming that as a threat. Um, and justifying this massive increase in profit um, for companies saying, well, well, we need to spend this money. Um, we're also seeing a massive uh, increase in forced returns. So people who are, arri- who are managing to get to Europe or to the US and they're forcefully being returned 
to their home countries or a third country, which may not be a safe third country. Um, and so there's huge profits being made on the borders themselves, in this construction of the borders, also in the detention centers. Uh, and once that profit, I mean, people can, you know, there's a lot of greed in international border politics. And once that greed kicks in, and they see that there's profit to be made. I think a lot of our framing in, in Transnational Institute has been that wars are no longer between two nations, as we saw before, you know, history kind of saw that there was wars between different nation states. Now wars are completely shifting in their shape. And we've seen that in the last decade or so, wars are being played out on borders. And it may not be high intensity conflict across a border for states fighting jurisdiction. But what we're seeing is low intensity uh, attacks on people who are fleeing conflict or fleeing poverty or violence. Uh, and this is their only means for survival. Does privatization necessarily make security more cruel, even violent? Can privatization lead to security that acts in a more authoritarian way? I think privatization is, is, I think the concern with privatization is that then where's your accountability? You know, you can't, can you hold a private company to account the same way as you would hope to hold a state to account and democratically elected leaders to account? Have we got any transparency at all about what's happening within a private company where, whereby we may hope to have the same sort of transparency, although things are also going in the wrong direction in that, in that situation. But, you know, privatization means that something is being done for profit. And if something is being done for profit, then the, the motives behind what's being done are immediately going to be questioned. And I think that that's not just in, in regard to border, border security or border securitization. Even if you, we look at our health systems with COVID-19, when you see a health system that functions for profit and there's money to be made from people getting sick, then you're into a, a completely different realm of of you know, where do your motives lie for that person's health, for example? So I think if you're looking at borders that are privatized and there's huge profits to be made from detaining people on borders, for putting them in prison, then where, your, where do your motives lie with ensuring that that person gets access to, to international protection? You write, it boils down to this. Those influencing and in charge of making the political decisions to boost the border apparatus get filthy rich by doing so. They concoct a narrative that justifies the beefing up of border security measures using the excuse of national security by framing those arriving from abroad as illegal, dangerous, and posing a threat to, quote-unquote, our ways of living. How much is our way of living dependent upon these cruel border policies? Are they correct that without borders we would not have our way of living because our way of living is based on institutionalized global inequality? I mean, our, our way of living is the way it's always has been, but we, we have a very short memory. Like I, like I said, when, when I was in Tunisia, people spoke about going to Italy on a summer break with no visa required. Uh, you know, I, I, I spent some time in the U.S. and people that I was in touch with, you know, would have had very, yeah, they would have come in and out of, I suppose I was in the U.S. before things became more digitalized, but they would have come in and out of the U.S. without any problem. Now for the same people to travel down to Mexico or Central America, it means that they're leaving forever because they most likely will not get back in. Um, so I think that we have a very short memory in terms of what our way of living is when we think um, and we legitimize and we accept that borders the way they are today, 2020, is the way they should be and the way they always have been. Because, in fact, that's entirely not the case. And 10, 20 years ago, we had a very, very different border structure and arguably a much safer structure for people who needed to move. They had, there was an infrastructure in place where they could do so with a lot less risk than, than they have today. And I think just taking, again, the example of, of the Mexico-Guatemala border, as the U.S., uh, you know, pours resources and, and training and, and equipment into uh, making that, in reinforcing that border, it's not that people decide, oh, you know what, I think I'll probably stay at home. People are not making decisions that, 
that they're going to leave because they feel they, oh, well, it's a nice opportunity. People are leaving because they have to leave. And so if the border is securitized, they're just going to try and find another way. And, and, and that is pushing them into the harm, the harm's way, basically exposing them to, to smuggling groups or to traffickers or forcing them along deadly routes. And, uh, you know, in, in particular, one of the routes that I've been looking at a little bit recently is, you know, moving up through Colombia and into Panama and people are traveling through the Darien jungle and being exposed to horrific dangers along that strip. But that's what people are doing because other routes are being closed down. People aren't going to stop moving. They're going to keep moving. And, it, you know, legally, states are obliged to guarantee international protection. What they're doing instead is shutting down borders and forcing them into these remote corners of the planet where they're being forced to, to, to move in the most inhumane way possible. This is this is new. People were able to move much more freely. And even coming from Ireland, Irish people moved to the US for years and years and years. We all have family in the US. They were able to go there and make a life for themselves. But recently, in the last 10, 20, 30 years, that has become increasingly more difficult. Um, yeah, so I think we need to look at how short our, our memory is, I think, when we when we justify the borders as maintaining our way of living. So just to play devil's advocate, uh, don't borders separate people into like-minded groups with common language, heritage, ethnicity, and culture, the things that make up what would be considered a nationality? Do borders contain that kind of togetherness, that, that kind of community, or do you see borders as something else than what people who would be supporters of borders and, and nationalists would believe in? No, I don't think borders, I don't think at all, actually, that borders are kind of, I mean, it would be in an ideal world, maybe borders would uh, contain us all within groups where we're with people who speak our same language and culture and that we would never need to move. Maybe in a very ideal world that might be the case and that we would have a greater togetherness. But no, I think that in fact those borders are actually about kind of wading through who's powerful and powerless and, and imposing a system of oppression and who is allowed to cross those borders is more often than not the powerful and the the rich and powerful in society and the powerless are the ones left on the other side. And so I think that, I mean, this is a, it's a system of inequality that stems back to colonialism and is being reinforced with the pretext of the COVID-19 virus um, and will continue to do so. That's why we really need to question, you know, why do we accept borders as a natural part of an apolitical structure of states? They're, they're not, you know, um, and we really need to question that and, and confront that narrative that borders are, are keeping us safe and keeping us in a, you know, in groups where we, we feel more together. Even if you look at a lot of countries in Europe, for example, taking the Iberian Peninsula and you have, you know, Catalonia, you have the Basque country, uh, you know, they're within the Spanish jurisdiction, but they don't feel or they don't identify as being Spanish. So, you know, what What does the border do for them? Or even if you take the case of Ireland, we have a border going across the middle of our country, which was designed 100 years ago. It's cause, I mean, it's a, it's a colonialist construct. If it's, you know, so the, the modern borders that we're seeing today don't, I don't think they do anything for keeping us safe or for providing a sense of togetherness. Um, I think they probably do the exact opposite. You write that in June, the EU signed a contract for an interoperable digital monitoring system to be rolled out by 2022 that will collect large amounts of personal data then uh, from third country nationals as they enter the Shenzhen region. That's the 26 European nations that share a border, including from children as young as six years old. The system's database will be accessible to hundreds of authorities and thousands of officials across Europe. will hold fingerprints and facial images of more than 400 million people by 2022. This mass surveillance of non-Europeans discriminates against, a third, against third country nationals, immediately treating them with suspicion and effectively assuming that they pose 
a threat. We have talked to historian Alfred McCoy about this in the past, how technologies that are used to oppress others, whether it's occupying another nation or here to defend borders, supposedly, that all of these technologies end up being turned on all of the citizens, not just those who are targeted as international terrorists or who are targeted as illegal immigrants. Why do we not see that working on the walls around us, why don't we see what the the impact of these kind of policies on non-immigrants, why don't we notice that that's going to be what's imposed upon us in the near future? Why do we never recognize that that is what's the next step? Um. I think probably a lot of it has to do with how things are spun in the media. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take, for example, uh, France and France's reaction to the, to the various attacks that it had um, in, uh, you know, that were meant that France kind of ushered in this temporary state of emergency and, and then suddenly that state of emergency became a permanent state of emergency through legislative changes. And I think in when France started imposing, you know, stop and search type of restrictions and movement, um, the general population probably thought at the time, well, this is a good thing because now we're going to find a terrorist. Uh, you know, this was kind of how the legislation was framed. But in fact, what we've seen is that legislation has been rolled out into a permanent state of emergency whereby everybody then becomes a suspect. Um, and I think that it's only in hindsight and with people can actually see how this was built up. So first of all, you see that there's a target group and Muslims have been horrifically, you know, scapegoated in Europe since 9-11 as uh, terrorists and this is it's absolutely you know it's unacceptable that a, a group would be targeted like that um, and in France we have seen that that then has been rolled out through legislation whereby then the legislation of, of course is applicable across society um, and I think that it's it's the same in in the when we talk about surveillance so we say well surveillance technology uh, you know people whose data is maybe taken crossing borders or whatever and, uh, you know, this kind of othering of the situation. But of course, like like you said, that this will eventually come to impact us all. If we could realize this earlier uh, and act as a collective, of course, that's where, you know, there would be real movement and pushback. But often, like I said, the spin from the media is often that these are measures that are being taken to keep us safe from an external other. And in the past in Europe, what we've seen was that it was the scapegoating of Muslim communities. And now, as well as that, now we're seeing migrant communities. So, yeah, Um Let's see. What I, I mean, it's it's a really terrifying thing. I think what's coming ahead with the interoperable service because or system. Because if you think that that amount of information is available to thousands of people across the whole of Europe to do whatever they want with it, and you know that is absolutely terrifying. I think it's really interesting that you make at least made me think when I was reading your article if borders cause wars or if they protect us from conflict. I think that's a question that we should all be asking, especially during this time of an uprising against racialized police violence that is completely intertwined with the same kind of classist and racist issues that face migration every day. We've, I got one last question for you, Nave. We've been speaking with Nave Niviren. She is a legal scholar who wrote the Roar magazine article, The Deadly Politics of Colonial Borders Under COVID-19. Neve coordinates the Transnational Institute's War and Pacification Program. You can find out more about the Transnational Institute at TNI.org. And you can follow the Transnational Institute on Twitter at TN Institute. One last question for you, Nave, And it is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience might hate your response. You write despite the legal obligation to guarantee the right to seek asylum. Europe and the U.S. have derogated from their legal obligation to provide international protection and are pushing back those attempting to reach European shores and deporting migrants arriving to the U.S. before they can exercise their right to seek asylum. This violates the fundamental principle of the forcible removal of refugees and is a grave breach of customary international law, international human rights law, and international maritime law. 
Nave, what happens when the global north flouts international law? What happens when there's one law for the north and another law for the south? Just like we are seeing on the streets of Kenosha and Portland, that there's one law for black people and there's another law for white people. Mm. Yes, it is indeed the question from hell. What do you do? Um when there is law for one law for for one group and another for for i mean i suppose that's when you mobilize and i think that that's where the strength is in the massive movements that we've seen across the us and 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 beyond as well in in pushing back against uh, you know pushing back against the forces of power and and you know in state oppression um and i i think we see again and again that laws are made by the powerful for the powerful, um, and you know the the, and that they're violated by them as well. Uh, and so I think that when we see laws that are you know being violated by the global north under the pretext of COVID nineteen, we see a massive securitization of health, where by everything and anything seems to go now um, under the guise of of COVID nineteen. You know, I think that the movements that we have, we can take massive, uh, you know, admiration for the fact that people are mobilizing. They're going out onto the street and they're saying, no, enough is enough. You can have one law for white people and another law for black people. And like you said, I mean, this this is again, it's it's the you know, it's the overflow from colonialism that we have never fully addressed. You know, our, the systems of oppression are still the same systems of oppression from from hundreds of years, and they're being recycled and reshaped. And it's, I mean, I suppose to get to the to the heart of it, we need to overthrow those systems. Um, and I think more power to the people on the streets, and and that will continue hopefully to mobilise in the face of what is horrific injustice. Um, and I think it's, it shows like this and writing articles and and which continues to kind of reinforce the the narrative that what we're seeing is not, this is not the world that any of us, I think, want to live in, a world that's encompassed with, you know, hate and violence. And I think that that's coming through very much so in, in the in the pushback against this idea that there's one law for one and there's another law for everyone else. And actually, we had a situation in Ireland um, two weeks ago where we had a, a number of political leaders, 81 in total, that were at a golf dinner, um, the elite political and judicial kind of figures in Irish society. Um, and, you know, they were, people were so angry that they had breached the COVID-19 guidelines and had this golf celebration. And there was a massive mobilization online and, and, and we managed to eventually force the resignation of a number of those key political figures. Um, and that was a kind of a pushback to say, well, no, there can't be one law for them just because they're political figures and another law for us because we're citizens of, or, you know, the people. There has to be the same law for everyone else. So it was an important victory, I think, in Ireland that we were able to push for resignation of a number, a number of key political figures who had breached regulations that we have all been following for months, you know. So I think those kinds of victories are what's important in 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 pushing back and demanding better. Nave, thank you very much for being on our show this week. And even though we've been discussing this article for 40 minutes, I want to tell you there is a lot more in Nave's writing. You can find it right now by going to our website where I have a direct link to her Roar Magazine article, The Deadly Politics of Colonial Borders Under COVID-19. Thank you so much for being on our show this week. This has been a fascinating conversation. And I really, really appreciate your article. Great. Thanks a million, Chuck. Thanks for your time. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? The winner of which will get a black this is hell trucker's cap with the logo on it in gray. And people can leave their answer to the question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash radio. They can tweet it to us. They can email it to us. Alex, what's this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is... How are you pushing Joe Biden left, LOL? (laughs) How are you pushing Joe Biden left? Aggressively. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. September 1st, 1859, 161 years ago tomorrow, Tuesday. 
two British astronomers named Richard Carrington and Richard Hodson, both independently observing the sun on the same day, noticed an intense flare of white light, much brighter than the rest of the sun, which lasted about five minutes. When they, what they saw was the expulsion of a huge and intensely hot cloud of solar plasma, pointing exactly in the direction of the Earth. It reached our planet a day later, causing a geomagnetic storm, the most extreme disturbance of the Earth's magnetic field ever documented. And considering the influence of social media today, we could use another geomagnetic storm right around now. Spectacular displays of the northern and southern lights were seen almost all the way to the equator, filling the skies with brilliant color, bright enough to wake birds and start them singing, which is very cool. But the storm also disrupted electrical circuits around the world. Telegraph operators received painful shocks and burnt hands from touching their switches, and at some offices, the telegraph equipment burst into flames. Okay, I want to see smartphones burst into flames. Bring it on. Other uh, operators uh, were astonished to discover that their equipment worked even when unplugged from any (laughs) power source at all. So, did everything work or not? Very confusing. Solar disturbances of such intensity are actually rather common, but they... Only rarely do the, but rarely only do the uh, plasma clouds directly hit the Earth. In 1921, a similar geomagnetic surge started fires in several telephone exchanges and railway stations in the United States and Europe. A smaller surge in 1967 temporarily disabled radar installations in the Arctic, briefly causing the U.S. military to go on alert for possible nuclear war. And as recently as 2012, a much bigger 2012, a much bigger cloud of solar plasma narrowly missed the Earth, but was detected by a research satellite. Scientists warned that if a plasma storm comparable to the 2012 event hit the Earth today, it would likely cause widespread power surges and blackouts. It would fry computers, smartphones, ATMs, and other devices around the world, and would heavily damage the international complex of digital communications, transportation, and finance. TV and radio would probably be put out of commission, along with the global network of telephone, weather, and GPS satellites. No radio? Okay, I've officially changed my mind. And I'm now anti-geomagnetic storms. Some systems could be protected by being shut down in advance, but even with today's technology, technologically advanced monitoring systems, there would be only a day or two of warning, and the effects of the geomagnetic storm would be felt for years, costing as much as two trillion U.S. dollars. Who cares? We'll print more money. But a de-digitized world? Count me in. Except for the no radio, radio part. That's just stupid. That's Rotten History, and this is how Alex, please tell us what's happening on the rest of this week's shows. All right, so on tomorrow, and it just, just landed in your inbox, we're talking with Robert Vitalis about his book, Oilcraft, Sweet. The Myths of Scarcity and Security That Haunt U.S. Energy Policy. And then on Wednesday, we're talking with Caroline Turwint about her book, When Protest Becomes Crime, Politics and Law in Liberal Democracies. And nothing up for Thursday except uh, for Jeffy. F5, and I got a probable, but I'm not going to say anything yet. Okay. Also, on tomorrow's or on tomorrow's show, we'll have Alex will be revealing some of your answers to this week's question from hell. Thanks to everyone who supported This Is Hell this weekend, including Jonathan D., Nicholas K., Joshua B., Spencer Y., Matlub M., my very first producer ever of my very first radio show when I was in 11th grade, Brian W. Thanks, Woj. And thanks for the tithing-like commitment of Brett B. Without your support, we would not exist. They all went to thisishell.com, clicked on support, and found all the ways they contribute to This Is Hell. They can contribute to This Is Hell. And listeners are loving the new black This Is Hell face mask and trucker's cap with the This Is Hell logo in gray, which is the prize for this week's question from hell. By the way, special thanks to Andy, who sent us a very thoughtful letter and package in the mail. Andy writes, sorry to hear about your masturbation injury, but I may have a solution for you. I joked about how my tennis elbow was probably from masturbating. It's actually from something far more embarrassing. I think it's from using my TV remote which is way more embarrassing. Wrapped up in this suggestive little tube is an even more suggestive small dense pool noodle type thing. Actually, I'm not sure it'll float. Maybe uh, you can't put it in a pool. I don't know. This red tube has been known to be effective at treating lateral epicondylitis, also known as tennis elbow, which is a painful condition that occurs when the tendons in your elbow are overloaded, usually by repetitive motions of the wrist and arm. Now tennis elbow, as I've learned, is a total misnomer. In fact, less than 5% of all tennis elbow diagnoses are even related to tennis. Now I'm not saying that the other 95% are all masturbation related. In fact, golfers, baseball players, bowlers, Lawn and garden workers, jobs that require vacuuming, sweeping, and scrubbing, carpen- and scrubbing, carpenters, mechanics, and 
uh, assembly line workers all get tennis elbows. So let's be generous and say each of these activities causes another 5 to 15% of tennis elbow cases, but these figures still only add up to 80% of all cases. The remaining 20% are surely all masturbation-related stress injuries, which is conveniently left out of virtually every medical website that lists the causes of tennis elbow. So why the hell do you think they call it tennis elbow anyway? Signed, Andy. So he sent this weird uh, piece of rubber thing that you bend and stretch, and with this package, he also sent images of me stretching this weird exercise tool and photoshopped in all sorts of weird ways. So it's one of the most bizarre things we've ever received. Alex will be posting an image of the letter or of the diagrams that uh, Andy sent on our Instagram page. So you'll be able to see that later on today. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth Radio Show podcast live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Nave. Alex, thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Special thanks to Thurn and Richard for doing all the work behind the scenes. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.